Hello. Um, yes, my name is Alex Potoski, and I'm slightly nervous, I have to admit. And I'm either going to stay here or I'm going to run around. So see if you can catch me if you can. Um, my first question, actually, no, first is a, an admission. Um, the column that I write about is about computer games. I am a gamer for my sins. And I was wondering if I could just ask you guys out there, who has played a game ever? <laughs> wow, look at that. Thousands of pumps. Keep, keep, up, up, up. Right, of you, all of you pretty much in the audience, who here still plays games? Ah, dropping of hands. Um, I'm a, well, I'm not going to make any assumptions. My third question is who here plays games and works in the games industry? Oh, look at that. <laughs> Gone. Oh, golly, there's two. Hello. <laughs> Three, four, four. Okay, there's a couple. There's actually more people than I thought would be here from the games industry because the web industry and the games industry do not meet. And it's the freakiest thing, and it's something I'm going to talk about later, something I'm going to try and hammer home the entire time, because it's fascinating, particularly because web people are obsessed with games. I remember when I first met Andy, I was giving a talk about games at a Girl Geek night, and, and he said, ooh, I work in the web industry, and I'm really interested in games. And I went, oh, God, yeah, that makes total sense. He kept saying, you know, you can play and buzzword this and collecting that and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, yeah, totally. I can totally see where that's coming from. Speaking with my gamer friends, they were like, nah, not interested. Don't really need those web types because we do it ourselves. And I was like, whoa. But surely there's, there's an amazing amount of, of synergy there that's going on there where you've got people who are interested in games and people who have a phenomenal audience. And if you bring the two together, you might actually get something that's beautiful. Again, more on that in a little bit. But the reason I think that web people are so interested in games is for that, that special, special feature of games. Oh, I didn't do it. Go, yes. Stickiness. Ah, yes. Games are incredibly, incredibly compelling. Phenomenally compelling. People lose their lives. In some cases, some people die playing games. Now, of course, we're not interested in creating that kind of phenomenon very often in the web. Depends on what you're into. Don't know. There's a lot of stuff out there on the internet. Whatever. But the reason why people who are developing web is because of stickiness. And stickiness is important because, ah, the big A. Yes. Dun, 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 advertising. And this comes from Seedcamp. There was, um, they put wordles up, really lovely graphics up about what is it, how is it that people who applied for Seedcamp, how is it that they're actually going to, how, how do they plan on making their money? And the vast majority of people, as you can see, said advertising. Now, how do advertisers get their worth? Well, that's that stickiness thing. That's those eyeballs. That's, you know, page impressions. And that's the only way that we can actually, as web people, looking at metrics, that's the only way that we can actually say, right, worth, there you go. Here you go, McDonald's. Here you go, eBay. Here you go, Amazon. There you go. That's your worth. You've got eyeballs. But... And so out of that, out of this stickiness, out of this relationship between games and web, has come a phenomenal number of Flash games that have cropped up, and marketers use them for everything from McDonald's to um, Skittles to presidential campaigns, and they stick them up on their website, and they say, brilliant, fantastic, that's our game, we've done it. 
But what they're finding is that people will just engage with those games for a brief amount of time, as long as that's an interesting brand, and then they'll move on. And that's actually not what we're interested about here today, because we're talking about the social stuff. We're talking about the stuff that goes on around the games and what it is that game designers do that help to create that social web. Oh, technology is hard. So about the graphics, really, isn't it? That's what it's about. It's all about those sexy, sexy graphics. Gran Turismo here, very sexy game, very sexy graphics. But you know what? On the web, you guys are able to embed content. You guys are able to put video, you know, real-life video with real-life people up into your systems. You don't necessarily have to create these phenomenal artworks that people play with in games. Great example, Vib Ribbon. Game from the PlayStation, absolutely brilliant game. And these are the graphics, a really badly drawn rabbit and a really badly drawn level. And you, as the player, just had to go like that. And it was so compelling. And I was there for hours and hours and hours creating my own levels, sharing them with people, saying, look, no, you've got to try this. This is absolutely amazing. It's a music rhythm action game. I love them anyway. So it was a music rhythm action game. The animation here didn't matter. It was all about that oft overused word in web circles. Play. So now that we know the graphics don't matter, let's think about something else that everybody thinks that games have, the story. It's all about telling a story. It's all about the narrative. It's about drawing people in and saying, right, let me lead you along this lovely garden path with these wonderful characters, and we'll all embrace and dance through the, I don't know, the minefields of Half-Life 2, for example, if you wish. Um, well, here's a little something, and the game developers in the audience could probably confirm this. The story traditionally has been the last thing that's been stuck onto the back of a game system. The story and the script are the last things that are actually thought about when you're developing a game. Again, it turns out that it's all about play. And that's what compels people to stick with the game for, quite frankly, an unreasonable number of hours. <laughs> that's from <laughs> my Nintendo DS, and that's Advance Wars DS. And I'd just like to say that that's not my playtime. But I'm not going to point out the person whose playtime it is. But anyway, this is the something special. This is what brings people. This is what forces people and ensures that people will stick. It is, unfortunately, I have to say, the play. So games are actually part of what, what I like to call and what um, I've heard. This is a brand new term for me. I think it's brilliant. The experience economy, which is just a, a fantastic way of saying, here's something that's really fun. Let's make it sound really dull. Also in the experience economy is roller coasters. Brilliant fun. Experience economy. Theme parks. Brilliant fun. Exp anyway, that's what games fall into. Games are part of emerging the player, creating the space, and... and allowing the player to explore, to experience those assets, to pick around in the back of what's going on in GoldenEye on the N64. You saw the film, now you can be James Bond. Now you can go behind those little bits and you can see that guy who's all frozen. Now you can actually make the story yourself and you can actually experience it. They're the Uber movie. They're the super TV. They're these things that you can actually take part in and suddenly you're the action hero. Now, arguably... This is difficult to do when you're dealing with a website. I, I appreciate this. But over the next couple of minutes, what I'm going to do is I'm going I'm to talk about three systems of development um, that games developers and designers bring into their games that help to create and help to ensure that they're, that they're quite social, that they are these compelling products. 
And I'm also going to counter each of these arguments with an example of the web. And I'll get to why in a little bit. The three systems I'm going to talk about are the controlled systems, uh, the enabling systems, and then the psychological systems. I am an academic, which means that I like to break things into theories and I like to put things into boxes, especially as a psychologist. We like to put things into boxes. And so these are the three boxes. This is the theory that I'm going to explore. And the first one is the controlled systems. Now, these are the, these are the bits that the designers can actually control. These are the bits that the designers say, this is game. Slap. Thank you very much. And this is what they actually build into things. These are the explicitly gamey things. <clears throat> First, oh, this sucked when I was a kid, man. Especially because you couldn't actually save in Super Mario Brothers. So you had to get there and you thought, oh, I'm at the castle, I'm at the castle. No, I'm sorry. Another castle. You have to keep going. No dinner for you. Can't even put it on pause because if you do that, you're going to run out of battery. Oh, it's all going to go horribly wrong. Suffice to say, I've never actually finished Super Mario Brothers. For my sins. In the controlled systems, the first one I want to talk about is that they design games to dangle carrots in front of people's eyes. Your princess is in another castle, but congratulations, you've come this far. You've invested this much time. We've given you clues. We've dribbled the experience. Please, keep playing. No, really, come with us on the rest of the journey. We're going to make it really, really interesting and really, really compelling. And, and they give more if people will just contribute that little bit more. And that's obviously a unique game thing, isn't it? Well, okay, it may not be as sexy as princesses, but the web does this too. And they ask people to give more and more and more and more of themselves, of their information, for example, of their time. They say, no, if, you are, if you're an expert user, then your blog will feature on the front of WordPress. If you want to find out, if you want to contribute to this conversation, then just give us a little bit of information about yourself. And of course, the more invested you are and the more that you've explored, the more involved that you've become and the more you've found of interest and of, and of use in these web systems, the more likely you are to give. And it's the exact same thing with games. For those psychologists in the audience, this is also known as cognitive dissonance. You can look it up later. Wikipedia, brilliant. The second thing I want to talk about this, uh, talk about in this system is openness. Games developers, this is from um, Liberty City, most recent GTA game. Games developers are obsessed, and in fact gamers, the reason that there's a kind of um, synergistic relationship here, obsessed with this idea of openness, creating these spaces that I want to go into that warehouse. See that one over there? I want to go onto, the, it looks a bit like sort of Lee Harvey Oswald place. I want to go up there, and I want to go hang out there, and I want to see what that's all about. I want, to, I want to feel, as a player, that I can go absolutely anywhere, and I can interact with anyone, and I can, I can speak with anybody, and I can do anything in this space. And that's one of the things that's certainly coming out of a lot of new console and PC games is this notion that it's an enormous world that you can buy into. You can feel part of that. You can engage yourself with that. You can get immersed in that and have a sort of a sense of presence in these places. These are called sandbox games. Um, and there is a very fine line between a sandbox game that's a little bit too much and one that's just perfect. Unfortunately, it's very difficult to know. Uh, Grand Theft Auto San Andreas, for example, or Tomb Raider 3, these are games that are considered way too big. And it takes ages to get from one end to another, and you're not really sure what to do. Well, 
But ultimately, these types of games <coughs> are better in terms of value, in terms of investment, in terms of engagement for the player, for the gamer, than a game that is known as being played on rails. It has nothing to do with rails designers. It's just what it's called. Uh, like my little web joke there. Um, anyway, so anybody who's wandered around the web is also aware that the web is an enormously open, vast, expansive space. And the rabbit holes that I've fallen down doing my PhD have been really interesting. I mean, really fascinating and phenomenal. And I'd lose days and months and, in fact, almost five years going down these rabbit holes and searching for something that's really interesting right then. I need to know all about that. Don't want to know about that. I need to know all about that. And so the web itself is an enormously vast and expansive and open environment that people can get involved with. The challenge, and this is the challenge that the games designers seem to have done a really good job, especially those in successful games, is to create a funnel that feels wide enough that people are in an open enough environment but that directs them down the path where they actually want to go to create that relevance. In games, it's called an ending goal. In the web, it might be finding out information or exposing people to lots and lots of different types of things that they didn't already know about. So that is the real challenge for web developers when you're dealing with this vast expanse of the internet. But you also want them to drift off the path and find out weird things about papercraft occasionally, for example which is what I spent a lot of time doing instead of social psychology. The next, emergent, uh, the next system that I want to talk about is the enabling system. Um, and the enabling system is a system in which there are emergent systems, right? Let's see if I can get this right. There are emergent systems, systems which emerge, or um, activities which emerge, or senses, sensibilities, social phenomena which emerge based on the creations that people, that the developers and the designers have made. They, the developers and designers have enabled. See where I'm going with this? They've enabled. I'll move on. Yes. First up, community. Everybody here knows about community because that's what the web's all about, especially web two or social web or whatever you want to call it. It's all about the community. And of course, this is from um, Alice Taylor, actually, should I, should I say her name? Her pseudonymity has just been completely destroyed. Alice Taylor, who writes for Wonderland, and I'm not sure who Munchausen is. Um, they're in World of Warcraft, and they had a uh, dinner party, uh, which they arranged for their guild members. Um, what's absolutely fascinating is that while web people have had community since you know, basically since the ARPANET, since one internet connected another internet to the internet in between, across between MIT and Stanford and, and um, Berkeley, there was already community there. The web facilitates community because ultimately it is two people or multiple people communicating. It just so happens to be behind a screen. Games, they may have had some community. They may have had some, um, some practice, some communities of practice ahead of time, but it really hasn't been until they've started to explore the web, until they've started to get involved with things like World of Warcraft, or things like EverQuest or Ultima, going back a little ways. These are the things that have really brought to bear this notion of community for the games industry. And it's only since places like this that I've started to see special community managers, people who are actually hired in to manage the community. Of course, web people have been, have been thinking about this for a while. But ultimately, the community that's built around the games 
or it's, it's built around this interpersonal interaction that's, that's based around a property. It's based around a thing that is the game or the sense of the belonging that is built around the fact that you are on dig or you're involved with something that happens to be something that everybody rallies around. Not laboring that point anymore, you know what I'm talking about. So out of community comes what I was alluding to before when I talked about the dinner party. Pictures look brilliant. They all got naked. They were dancing. It just sounds completely mental. And as somebody who's avoided World of Warcraft like the plague, no pun intended, uh, I'm, uh, it looked like quite a lot of fun and almost got me. Almost got me. Anyway, out of the community comes social value. And this is the next part of the system. Um, these are the features. These are the brands. These are the, the characters and occasionally even the stories. I say stories that, that are generated by the communities that are based upon the things that are developed by the designers, things that are created by the designers. And out of this comes the creative output that's completely separate to what the designers created. And this is, for me, the most exciting stuff. This is where you find real money transfer, people spending 15,000, well, supposedly spending 15,000 US dollars in a source program for an online baseball game in Second Life. Is that allowed? Linden Lab, were they allowed to sell that on eBay? I don't know. There's a bit of a question mark about whether you're actually allowed to sell these types of content for many of the online games. This is a phenomenal example of this because suddenly you've got a community rallied around an object that's virtual that has a value that has a real social value for the people who were involved. Um, again, these things have been developed by the designers. Um, these, these things have... Uh, I've said value far too many times already. Um, the relics, the assets that are generated by the people who've designed these games, whether they're based on the economic models that have been put into place, these are the things that people, that people engage with and that people play with. <clears throat> things like... Um, in games, um, game FAQs. People spend a lot of time developing um, FAQ systems, how to get through, walk-through systems for how to get through games. These are some of the things that I'm talking about that help to develop and to create that social value. And as I mentioned, you don't have to create a brand. You don't have to create an economic model around your website in order for this to happen. Um, these, these are just some of the websites, amillionpenguins.com, uh, which was a wiki novel where people just got together and they thought, brilliant, okay, we're going to be supported by Penguin. Penguin's going to have nothing to do with this except to provide the platform. Let's just play around and see what comes out of it. Pac Manhattan, obviously inspired by a game, but you know, using the real world space and creating a space where people who were involved and invested with location-based gaming could get together to create something that they were able to. Find Satoshi comes from a game that's called Perplex City, and that happened to spawn loads and loads of websites, even the dreaded zombies and the werewolves and all that kind of stuff. You can see this again and again where creative output is actually coming, and I love this. This is from data mining. God, the amount of data mining stuff that's on absolutely amazing, the amount of visualization stuff, the ludic, the playful visualization stuff that comes out of web development is phenomenal, and that's where people are playing in this space. This, <coughs> I don't know if anybody's seen this before, but this is how Robert Scoble, <laughs> where Robert Scoble, Scoble fits into Twitter. As you can tell, he's in the middle, <laughs> unsurprising, based upon the people that he's connected with. But this is how people are playing online already. 
The last set of systems is psychological. And as I mentioned, I'm a social psychologist, so these are close to my heart. And the first is obviously the relationship between the avatar. Now, these are all um, from Second Life. So obviously, in that space, you have a, a, an environment in which everything is personalizable, and you can actually create whatever you want. And so the, the notion, the idea of, of having an avatar that represents, that quite literally represents something about yourself, it's quite an explicit connection. But <clears throat> what I found fascinating was maybe about... Four years ago, we started to see in traditional console gaming and PC gaming, we started to see more of this role-playing element wherein a character started to develop assets, whether it was muscles or superior problem-solving skills or was able to run further based upon the actions and the activities that people in the game did. Now, this wasn't necessarily based on a database that was built this online. This was actually stuff that was built into the actual game itself. And through this role-playing system and through this engagement, the players started to recognize that they could actually play with this and they could start to create an avatar. They could start to create the character that leads them through the game, that represents them through the game and have it more closely represent themselves. And this personalization has been an absolute revolution. It's been absolutely amazing to witness, to see how this type of thing has started to really encapture and, and enrapture games designers and developers. And of course, that's impossible in the web industry, isn't it? Couldn't possibly have that much personalization. Couldn't possibly have, you know, literally everything on the web is personalized. MySpace, really easy example. All of these are different. There's me in the middle. Hello with different colored hair. Um, the, the web offers phenomenal personalization opportunities, but that's a relatively recent thing. It used to be that really the only thing that could represent you was um, perhaps a pseudonym, something that you used, a tag uh, that you used when you were in a chat room, or perhaps an image. Um, and for the hardcore role players, they would be able to develop characters that would transfer around. But with things like this, you've got explicit things, almost as, as blatant as a teenager's bedroom saying, this is who I am. These are the bands that I like. This is what I do. This is who I am. And with this, combined with something like OpenID or any of these other types of, um, types of applications and, and theories and possibilities of bringing um, a massive, widespread identity, something that follows you and then says, right, come on, this, I'm going to say to people, this is who you are based upon what you do, based upon who the person that you want to represent. And this is something that's actually compelling and is, is also, it's something that's being realized on the web. And then finally, something that's much more of a sort of basic social, uh, so, no, basic psychological urge. And this is something that I think the web community is really focused on. Uh, the idea of collecting stuff. <laughs> it seems to me that when I, when I do speak with, with web developers, they talk about, you know, right, okay, we need to create a system wherein uh, you collect a certain number of points and then you, you know, there seems to be a real sort of emphasis on that as a, as a way to bring gaming into the web. Um, indeed, this could be part of that funnel, part of that goal direction uh, in games and also on online um, online environments, but partially what, why it works so well is because it's a sense of challenging yourself. It again comes back to that reflection of identity of who I am. I've collected this many coins, that means I've done this many things. And of course, something like PMOG um, can be played. It can be played to collect things. You can go out and you can seek to earn certain things, certain badges on the basis of, right, I'm going to specifically try to not use Google for seven days so that I can get this badge. 
Right? At the same time, you don't have to do that. You could happily traipse along and have this visualization of who, who you are and your identity. You, know, you can have this online and you can have this represent yourself. You don't have to actively play it, but you can actually go out there and you can actually collect these things. So how have game developers done this? I know that there's a lot of, um, a lot of research. I know that there's a lot of... Um, human-computer interaction work. I know there's a lot of user experience work. So much of this stuff is, is focused on in web, and it's fascinating, absolutely phenomenal. And so it, it seems only logical and only likely because what games developers do is they create these compelling, engaging feedback systems, these beautifully designed feedback systems, which work, and they work so beautifully. They work so well that they do compel people for 344 unreasonable hours on the Nintendo DS. <laughs> so, surely they should engage with these types of things as well. Um, well, interestingly enough, this is what I've learned. And this is a gamer. It's a bad representation of a gamer. I do appreciate I'm also a gamer. <laughs> I hope I don't look like that right now. Don't know, last night, party, who knows. This is a gamer. And what I've found is that the gamers tend to make the games designers. That there is really a loop, a feedback loop, that there isn't as much focus in games development on things like UI, on things like HCI, on theories of engagement and involvement. These things have emerged because the games designers were gamers themselves, and they're developing games, and they're developing products that appeal to them because in their gut they know it's a good game. They know it plays well. It's, it's a phenomenal qualitative, it's utterly un it feels utterly unquantitative from the games developers and the designers that I've spoken with, <clears throat> I say, oh, I didn't, I didn't actually really know that there was an industry called human-computer interaction. <clears throat> I've spoken with some programmers who were really annoyed by that because as part of their degree, they have to study human-computer interaction. And then they come into the games industry and the designers say, right, right, so we're going to build this giant tree and the tree is going to have things that drop off and it's going to be brilliant. And they go, but... How does that respond? How does that relate to the player? And what's fascinating is that they've done it. They seem to have cracked it. It's worked in a beautiful and compelling way. But truly, it's because you've got this cycle of gamers making games for other people who play games. In contrast, this is the audience of the web developers. And as you have, as you already have, the skills, and as, as I hope I've conveyed, as you already have all of these techniques that you haven't necessarily had to apply, the, the playful things that you haven't necessarily had to shoehorn into your development practices, they've just emerged, perhaps for the same way, the same reasons that game developers have created products that have emerged. There's a couple of challenges. <laughs> First challenge, it would be great, really beautiful. I mean, just like, summit, Gorbachev and Reagan, oh, beautiful. If we bring everybody together and we get, if we get web people to actually speak with games people, I find, apologies to the games people in the audience, but I find that in, in environments like this, in places like this, where there is something, there is so much that can be given back to the games industry from what we're talking about today, from the things that you can talk about when you're having coffee, there are very, there's very little games representation, and I don't know why. Some of the people I've spoken with have said, well, they're more interested in what we can give to them. I don't actually agree with that. I actually think that you guys already know how to make stuff that's compelling. You already know how to make stuff that's playful because you're already doing it. 
So there's other things that you're able to give back. So the first challenge is talk to them. The second challenge is that the games industry at the minute is doing a really beautiful job of creating compelling, I keep saying this word, but it's so true, creating compelling entertainment that's cross-media, that's cross-platform. They're using cameras, they're using music, they're using all different types of things that aren't necessarily just merchandising opportunities or marketing opportunities. They're actually integrating all these things across different platforms and using them in really fascinating and some quite innovative ways. But if only the web people could say, right, well, I've got all this. See this baggage that I'm bringing with me? I've got all this. Well, if we meet in the middle, then we're able to create something phenomenal, something beautiful, and something that could potentially revolutionize multi-platform entertainment forever. Thank you very much. <laughs> Questions? And I will duck. I'm sorry if I have offended the games people. With uh, get games coming out, things like Spore and uh, Little Big Planet, would you say that, that the games industry are kind of almost trying to learn from us mm. certain things as well? Well, what's fascinating about Little Big Planet is that the... The, the producer on it, the, the sort of in-house producer uh, at Sony, <coughs> not at Media Molecule, who's the company that, that's, that's actually developing it, comes from a web background. And I know certainly at places like um, EA and Guildford, which used to be Criterion, they're working on a lot more of this kind of social networking stuff. This Spore, not necessarily because Spore comes from Will Wright, and Will Wright has a background of developing simulated games um, that are quite compelling to wide audiences. But in terms of something like Little Big Planet, where you do have that notion of almost a MySpace for user-generated gaming content, I would definitely say for sure, for sure, for sure, they're starting to engage with that. And certainly you can see that with things as well. Examples like uh, the Xbox uh, Gamer Score. You know, that's another example of a social network. And bringing these types of, this type of knowledge from the web into embracing that. But unfortunately, it really does feel like it's few and far between. And I don't understand why the, why the twain don't actually just hang out occasionally. There are five games companies, five international games companies in Brighton. And there's only a couple representatives here. And it just seems fascinating to me that there, that there isn't more of a relationship there. Yeah. Have you seen any effort to kind of when I look at the games industries, I see people locked into certain platforms. That's part of the problem is like trying to cross from web to Xbox. And I remember earlier on, I, I'm, I'm a DS fan myself, and I keep looking at this and going, it's got Wi-Fi. It's got Wi-Fi. I've got to be able to do something besides get my ass kicked on Mario Kart. <laughs> you know, there's got to be a way to make these things interact. I keep on waiting for the Wii and the DS to try to start talking to each other because you can do these compelling games. You can take parts of them with you. Is anybody doing more stuff like that, try to bring these different aspects into the games? Well, you um, all have a little history tour now. The thing that I found, the, the most innovative thing I've ever seen in my entire life in games was on the DS. Not the DS, excuse me, was on the Dreamcast. Dearly departed Sega Dreamcast. The Sega Dreamcast was an ill-fated machine that was so ahead of its time, like so ahead of its time that we're only actually now seeing the realization of some of the things that the Dreamcast put into place then, and actually seeing it now in the mainstream games console. Well, things, exactly, and, and <laughs> you're doing that. I know exactly what you're talking about. Exactly, so that's an example. You're asking why there isn't more integration. So back in the day, woo, 
early 2000s, early ooze. Um, the Dreamcast was released with much fanfare. We'll all play together. It's connected to the internet. Whoa! You can play Choo Choo Rocket, which is a little maze game. You could create your own content for that, and you could share it. You could play Fantasy Star Online, which was a massively multiplayer online game, using this home console, and it was absolutely amazing. <clears throat> but what it also had, which I think alludes to, to what you're talking about, is a relationship between something that you could take away. The memory card... On the, on the Dreamcast, big chunky Dreamcast controller, was called the Visual Memory Unit. And you plugged it in, and it acted like a memory card on any traditional games console. It saved your game. But what it also did was it had a little visual, it had a little screen. So you could take that out, and it acted like a very small games handheld machine. About the size of a modern mobile phone. <laughs> Not like those big clunky ones. Anyway, um, and you could take that away, and you could play a pared-down version. You could, you could play a pared-down version of the game that you'd saved on your machine. So if you were, for example, playing, um, I think there was one on Sonic, one of the Sonic games that was released on there. You could play something on Sonic, bam, 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 brilliant, beautiful graphics, whatever. You could take it away, sitting in the bus, sitting in the tube, sitting, staring at the window, <laughs> whatever, wherever you are where you've got a little bit of time and you want to play with this. You could take it out, and you could play a sub-game. And that sub-game, when you then transferred it back to the Dreamcast and back to that saved game, enhanced your character, enhanced the game that you'd actually played around with. Now, we're starting to see that. I think the, um, in the last Nintendo system, the GameCube, you were able to connect that. There, was, there were relationships there as well. And I know that they have been talking about having relationships between the PlayStation 3 and the PSP. And we haven't really seen the realization of those things. One, one really, really interesting area that I'd wanted to put in here, but I wasn't sure how quite to fit it in, is that when the Xbox 360 was announced at E3 several years ago, the Electronics Entertainment Expo several years ago, they said that you'd be able to connect the Xbox 360, a Microsoft machine, with the PlayStation Portable, with the PSP, with the iPod, with the, the, and you'd be able to actually interact and engage with that. So that cross-platform opportunity is there. I don't know how the realization of that has, has come about. There's not much play. I think of it as more of a storage system. Um, but yes, I think that there's, there's more of that. And those cross-platform issues, it's a challenge, it's, it's an obstacle to leap over, but the facilities and the, and the opportunities exist there. Yes. Um, hi there. <clears throat> um, do, do, what do you think um, creates this kind of divide between the games industry and the web industry? Do you think it's because of like a platform or broadband issue or because the games industry is more based around kind of fantasy or something and it's more kind of not, not really taken seriously and the web is kind of a real environment? I don't know where you are, so I can't... So I'm like, here. Oh, there you are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like staring vaguely at... Um, I think it's because they developed in two different ways. Um, the games industry really developed out of a kind of, especially in the UK. The British, the British games industry is amazing, out of uh, how it developed. It, it's been so, so innovative. And, but it primarily developed out of a bedroom coder sensibility, um, where the aim, where most of the people just thought, right, I'm going to try this. All right, it worked. I'm going to sell it to my mates. Right, okay, I'm going to sell it to more mates. Oh, my God, look at all those people who bought my game. I can't believe that. So it was kind of a pocket over here, and it really hadn't intended to be something much larger. Whereas the web industry, I, I think, has always been about connecting people. And so there's, 
been a different type of person who's come to this space because they haven't been creating things specifically for game interaction. Um, they've been creating things specifically to connect people. Now, social web, while I did say that the, that the web and the communities have always happened on the internet, it really hasn't been until very recently that it's been widespread and people have actually really been able to engage with the web. And I think that now that we see people really engaging with the web, then we're going to start hopefully seeing more crossover. Because certainly people who make games, look at this, this side, that side. Anyway, people who make games are very much about interacting with the machine. And increasingly, they're starting to play around interacting with other people. The web used to be about interacting with machines, and now it's more about interacting with other people. So if the twain can meet, then that would be brilliant. And in terms of <clears throat> how the games industry is perceived, it is unfortunately perceived as, well, that picture I showed you. <laughs> I'm not really breaking any stereotypes here, unfortunately. Um, it's perceived as a child's uh, plaything, um, unfortunately. Uh, and I think that ultimately people don't recognize the depth and the breadth of what is possible and what's being done in the games industry. It isn't just about fantasy. It isn't just about shooting people. It isn't just about racing fast cars. Um, there's a lot of other fascinating things that are happening, um, the content that's happening in the games industry. And it's also not just about military endeavors either. Um, but there's a lot of fascinating things in the games industry that are out there that I think haven't been communicated well enough. Um, that's a marketing issue, and that's a whole other talk. So what he's saying is that the barrier is to do with the, the notion of open standards, open development practices in the web versus very proprietary elements in the games industry. And hopefully we'll start to see that changing as more independent development starts to come out. Um, I'm adding that bit, by the way. But hopefully, hopefully we'll start to see um, more of that open standards concept um, breaking out as more independence start to create their products as well. Um, hello. Um, I just wanted to go back this to... This is the last um, question, by the way, so I'll, I'll speak with you later. <laughs> oh, sorry, whoever was going to ask one. I just wanted to go back to your thing about um, what you referred to as a feedback loop between uh, games players becoming games designers. Uh, do you think there's a problem in with people preaching to the choir? I mean, I think the problem we have a lot on the web is that, yeah, we're trying to target a very large audience. But one of the reasons we have all these research practices in place is to make sure we target people who are not like ourselves rather than designing products based for ourselves. And actually, one thing you are seeing, you do see a lot in the games industry, is people making games they want to play rather than people making games an audience wants to play. And it's a problem that's there on the web too. And I, I think it's kind of dangerous. And I was wondering if you could comment on ways that the games industry and perhaps the web industry are getting around that and if either of them could learn anything from each other about it. How they're not preaching to the choir? Well, how they're, no, how, they, how they're getting around this issue. Yeah, how they are learning how to avoid doing this. In the games industry in particular, there's been a lot of research uh, recently trying to <laughs> expose mm, people who aren't traditional gamers. Um, say, these people also play games. <clears throat> uh, I wrote a paper about women and game, gaming. It was unfortunately titled Chicks and Joysticks. That was not my choice <laughs> to say. Um, however, we'll let that slide. Um, so that's one way that the games industry, and that's sort of research perspective. Another really, really obvious example is something like the Nintendo DS's brain training. Wow, were they surprised by that. Woo, golly. Uh, Nicole Kidman playing a DS? 
Johnny Ball, Zoe Ball, everybody's playing DS. Um, and that's one way that they're starting to try and expand that. And I think that the impetus for that was the recognition that while at the minute they've got a really fantastic audience um, of primarily between the ages of 14 to, I suppose it's moving up to 30. Um, the average age of an Xbox gamer is 28, for example. Um, that sort of age range. They recognize that there's a drop-off that's going to happen, and that if they don't adapt, then not only will they, be able, will they not be able to um, get all that possible money, but the money that they're currently getting now will start to dwindle. So I think that's why the, that's why the games industry is, has started to think about that. In terms of the web industry, I mean, I don't know. Um, I'm closer to the games industry, unfortunately. Um, well, not unfortunately, but in, with reference to your question, obviously. Um, examples of how... I'll have to think about that, and I'll have to get back to you on that, Tom. Sorry. But I might blog about it. <laughs> Thank you very much.